I want you to think back to your youth. For some of you, that's as hard as thinking back to this afternoon. But for others, that's a little bit further back. Think back to your youth. Have you, when you were growing up, did you ever hear something along the lines of, won't you ever learn? How many heard something like that? It, it really isn't a question, is it? As a parent, we've probably used similar type of language with our children at different times. It's not really a question, it's a rhetorical question. Won't you ever learn is a statement of saying you really need to learn something right now. We, we know that this kind of statement is not a good thing. The, the idea that, that those who have failed to learn from previous experiences, history if you will, are doomed to repeat it. There's a reason we say those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it because we learn that lesson at early age, or at least we experience that lesson. We maybe don't learn. That's the problem. The, the reason our parents uttered that question is because they, they recognize that at this moment we're in a pattern that either is already repeating itself and landing us in a new complication of life, in other words, about to be on the broad hand, side of their hand probably, or we're about to do so if we don't quickly change. In either case, the challenge that's being offered with this question is that, that we'll consider our past experiences and, and somehow connect the dots to what's going on right at this moment and turn away from the undesirable results that are coming in the very near future. Right? That, that's the idea of the question. Our parents hoped that we would improve because we'd avoid repeating the mistakes. When we use it with our kids, we hope they'll learn and avoid repeating mistakes. How about when God is the one who's asking that question? Tonight, as we begin a series through the Old Testament book of Zechariah, we'll see God essentially asking that same question. Won't you ever learn? I've entitled this series, Hope Beyond Hardship. Hope Beyond Hardship. That's really the, the theme of the, the book of, of Zechariah. And we'll see that from God's perspective, hardship can lead to a future hope. The, the question is, will it lead there? It can, but will it? Won't you ever learn? When it comes to an Old Testament book, especially Old Testament prophetic books like Zechariah, Context is extremely important. We, we need to understand what's going on in, in the, the time that this book is given. E essentially, Old Testament prophetic books, those are, that, that we have, they're, they're really essentially sermons, if you will, that the God inspired Old Testament prophets to, to give to the nation of Israel and then to record so that we still had them. Uh, the nation of Israel, of course, was in a covenant relationship with God. And that covenant relationship that they had with God, it detailed what, what God promised to do for them and what God expected from them. There, there was a relationship here. And, and the prophets served really as God's spokesmen. They, they were called by God to address various aspects of, of these covenant expectations at various times. And based on the time, different aspects were were focused on because of what was going on around them. 
especially when the people were falling short of their covenantal duties, God would bring these spokesmen onto the scene, and they would function really as, as covenant enforcers. They were there to remind the people of what they were committed to do because of their relationship with God. It's often then difficult to make sense of what God calls a prophet to say to the people unless we know what was going on with the people when God called this prophet out to speak. What is the, the, the issues of the day that's causing this sermon to be given to address this concern in the covenant relationship? Fortunately, when we come to Zechariah, we know what is going on when God first calls Zechariah to, to speak for him. We, we know because we're told when, historically, Zechariah is speaking. I trust that as I've been talking, you've spent the time to find the book of Zechariah. It's one of those small books. It's just a few pages before Matthew, if you're not quite sure where it lands. It, it's just uh, it's second to the last book, Zechariah, Malachi, and then you hit Matthew, but Malachi is really short, so just a few pages before Matthew. So hopefully you found it by now, and I've given you just a little bit more time there. Look at verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, saying. Well, we're not told the exact day, but we are told the exact month that, that God is speaking to Zechariah. That, that helps us narrow things down in, in, in world history pretty well when we're told what month of the year. By, by our calendars, it would be October, November. Our months don't quite line up with, with the months that were used back then. So think October, November, mid-October to mid-November of the year 520 B.C. Darius is king. He's king of the Medo-Persians. So we know what year we're in. It's 520 B.C., October, November time frame. We also happen to know that this is exactly two months after Haggai, was called to speak as a prophet. That should immediately raise some notes in your mind, some flags go up. If God's bringing two prophets to speak at the same time within a two-month window, there's something kind of significant going on. You, you can go centuries without a prophet speaking. And here you have two coming in, in two months apart. Two prophets speaking at the same point of time with such precise dating. In fact, Haggai, we can tell the exact day he spoke his first prophet prophecy. With two prophets speaking with such precise dating tells us there is a lot going on. But what is going on? Unless you're really up on your Bible history, having a date like October, November 520 B.C., is probably pretty insignificant to you, or at least it's insufficient to, to let you know, oh yeah, now I know what's happening. Most of us probably aren't quite that up on, on the contextual things happening in history that many years back. So, you might be slightly better off because I mentioned Haggai, and now from our standpoint, it was only less than two months ago that Michael Pement stood here and preached from the first chapter of Haggai in our DIY service. So we don't have to go back thousands of years. We only have to go back a month and a half. And if we can go back that far and we were paying attention, I know there's a number of ifs there, right? If, if, if. We might know a little bit what was going on. Still, that, that was a month and a half. And, and to Michael's defense, he had to skim through the history fairly quickly because I only gave him 20 minutes for everything, so he couldn't spend a whole lot of time on context. 
but we have heard some of this. Since I plan to spend a few months in Haggai, or in Zechariah, not Haggai, I'll probably slip more than once, but I plan to spend a few months here. I'm going to spend more time than Michael had giving us the context tonight. I'll spend some time this evening helping us understand what is going on when God calls first Haggai and now Zechariah to the scene to speak to his people. So keep your finger in Zechariah, unless you can turn back to it later, but, but turn with me to the fourth chapter of Ezra. Right after First and Second Chronicles, you know, you have those books, and then you have Ezra and Nehemiah. So turn to the, the fourth chapter of Ezra. And, and I want to start with the first four verses. Well, actually, before the fourth chapter, we'll start in Ezra chapter 1, the first four verses there. That really backs us into the context. Ezra begins, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea, or in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the man of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Judah, as I'm sure you know, I expect most of you have some broad brush of, of Israel history. So Judah, as you know, has been captured by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians came and captured uh, Judah. That was during the days of Jeremiah. That was just mentioned. Jeremiah was a prophet right at the end, and they were taken into exile. Uh, the, Judah had been under the, the control of the Babylons for a time, and they had rebelled against uh, the Babylons multiple times, and in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and finally destroyed Jerusalem. And he had taken at that time most of the population into exile. He left a few of the poorest of the poor behind, but he'd taken most of the people into exile. From a historical perspective, that was standard Babylonian practice. Um, that was how they controlled the population. They would take people and deport them to a foreign land as as they would symbolize by doing that, you are a broken people, we have completely conquered you, plus they assume that if you were in a foreign land, you wouldn't fight for your freedom as much, because why would you want to be free in a foreign land? It's not your homeland anyway. So that's what had happened. The, Jew, Judah, the Jews had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and deported to various places, actually. We know of those that went to Babylon, but they actually spread people throughout the empire. They deported them. Now, before that, God had called many prophets over the decades to come and warn the people of Israel that if they did not turn from their sin, their covenant violations, the covenant enforcers, if they did not turn, they would end up in exile. That was going to happen. That was the final result that would come. They, if they continued to rebel against him, that spiritual rebellion was going to result in punishment. So from a 
historical perspective, we see Babylon doing their normal practice of deporting people, but from a theological perspective, the cause of their exile was their sin, their spiritual rebellion. Political rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar caused their historical circumstances, but spiritual rebellion against God was the theological cause. We are to understand that before we even get to Ezra. And then when we come to Ezra here, we see that Cyrus of the Medes and Persians, the Medes and Persians conquered Babylon in 539. When they come along, Cyrus now, he institutes a different foreign policy than what the Babylonians had. Cyrus had a history of being what was considered an enlightened ruler. His desire or his way to control the populace was through um, appeasing them and giving them contentment. He thought a contented populace was easier to rule than a discontented one. So his policy, part of that policy, was to allow whatever gods, the various lands that had been conquered, worshipped, let them keep worshipping those gods. So consistent with that policy that Cyrus had in 539, Cyrus issues a decree that we just read that allowed the Jewish exiles to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple, worship their God. Cyrus is just doing what Cyrus does, but Ezra points out this is according to what God had said would happen through Jeremiah the prophet before the exile ever came. Cyrus is doing what he wants, but he is still God's tool. He is an instrument in God's hands. And Ezra makes sure we understand that. Now, the first few chapters of Ezra record how this group of exiles uh, gathered together under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and they went to Jerusalem. Just as Cyrus said, you can go back, you can rebuild the temple to your God. Some of the Jews led by Zerubbabel said, let's do that. So they gathered a group together. They, they took up collection from the people that, that, for whatever reason, did not return. Some maybe were too subtle, some were too ill, whatever, but they took up collection from many people to give plenty of, of means, and they went back to start rebuilding the temple. And they did. They, they quickly, when they returned to Jerusalem, quickly laid the foundation for the new temple. Unfortunately, those rebuilding activities encountered challenges. Now flip over to chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4. This is Ezra still. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, households of Israel, said to them, You have nothing in common with us, building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. We can go on and read more, but essentially what happens as they start building the, the temple foundation the people that had been settled by the Babylonians in that land, just as Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken the Jews and exiled them to foreign lands, Nebuchadnezzar had taken other people where he conquered them and exiled them to the land of Judah. And while they were in Judah, they had mixed with the 
the few poorest of the poor Jews that lived there and kind of brought their own religion and grabbed a little bit of Judaism and kind of meshed it together and created a syncretistic religion that they said, well, now that you're building a temple, let us come worship with you. And the Jews said, no, no, you're not part of us. You're not one of us because you're not worshiping in a clean fashion. You're, you don't really understand who God is. You're not qualified. So these people who were living in the land that wanted to help, they were rebuffed rightly by the people who had come back, the, the genuine Jews that come back. They'd been rough, but they rebuffed rightly, but they did not take that rebuffing well. That, that rejection of, of their offer was not taken lightly, and, and they discouraged, we're told in verse 4. As read details further, there's a number of legal maneuvering they do, there's a number of intimidation tactics they take on, but they do a number of things to stymie, stymie the, the rebuilding efforts until if you look down to verse 24, you see the commentary there, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Does that second year of the king of or the reign of Darius, does that ring any bells? Zechariah chapter 1 is that second year of the reign of Darius. We just read that in Zechariah. Now from the from the point where the building stops on the temple until the point where we come to now, actually I, two months earlier, the, the day when Haggai receives his first prophecy, August 29, 520 B.C., that second year of Darius, in the, in the month of August, Haggai is suddenly bursts on the scene, calling for people to pick up their tools and get back to work on rebuilding the temple. From the time it was stopped until that moment when Haggai calls out to the people, 15 years have gone by. They came back under Zerubbabel, anxious to start building. They began with gusto, hit opposition, and stopped for 15 years. Haggai suddenly bursts on the scene, as I said. He calls for them to return to the work. And he does that by essentially accusing people, Haggai that is, accuses people on God's behalf, that... While they've spent those 15 years not rebuilding the temple, they've certainly built for themselves nice houses. They've taken care of their own pleasure and their own things while ignoring God. Haggai's message there in August it struck a core with the, the people. God had prepared their hearts so that they were struck with great remorse for their, their disregard of God. And by the end of of that month, I mean, we say August 29th, you're like, well, there's only another day. Remember, their months don't quite line up. By the end of the month they were in, work was underway on the temple. Within a, two, three weeks, they got back to work, and for the first time in 15 years, you had hammers clanging and saws cutting. Work was being done. So now turn back to Zechariah. Understand that Zechariah places us then one or two months into the swinging of the hammers and the cutting of the saws at the temple site. Two months after Haggai speaks, one to two months, somewhere in that range from when the work actually got going. It, it took a couple of weeks. They had to assemble resources to build. They, there wasn't a, you know, Lowe's to run out to. They had to actually go get the trees and things to, to start building. But they got to work quickly. That's when... We come to Zechariah, a month and a half or so into that building project, 
that the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. That, that phrase in verse 1, the word of the Lord, that, that's Yahweh, the covenant God, the word of Yahweh, it came. It means that God gave Zechariah a prophetic revelation. Zechariah is speaking on God's behalf, the covenant God to his covenant people. I will note that from the information we are given about Zechariah's family, that tells us that he's a priest. His grandfather, Ido, that's mentioned there, or Ido, depending on how you pronounce it, 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 he's lifted one of the heads of the priestly families that, that returned with Zerubbabel. He's one of the, the men that came back to start the work Edo was and take, took on this project of rebuilding the temple when Cyrus issued his decree. He's one of the priestly families. It, it's interesting note that Haggai, who God called to be a prophet, is also a priest. So God calls two men who are priests to come and speak to the people as prophets because they're not rebuilding the temple where the priests are to be serving God, leading the people in worship. God calls these two priests now to serve as prophets to move this nation to rebuild the temple so that the priests could do what the priests are supposed to do, lead the people in worship. So let's go on and read the rest of our verses for this evening. We're going through the first six verses of Zechariah, picking up Zechariah chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words, my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Essentially, God is saying in these verses, won't you ever learn? Why is he saying that? Based on, on what I've told you about the, the temple, construction is underway. Why is God asking this question that essentially boils down to, won't you ever learn? Well, as we think through the, the five verses this evening, two through six, there, there are four points that, that I want us to learn from these verses and four points that then will lead us to the overall idea of why God is giving this message. The first point that, that we see from verses 2 and 3, mainly 3, is that God calls us to turn from our own rebellion. God calls us to turn from our own rebellion. The Lord begins here by reminding the people through Zechariah that he was very angry with their fathers. Very angry. So angry they went to exile. From, from the context that, that comes, we, we can see that the fathers is a reference to their forefathers, those who repeatedly broke the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic Law until God had taken them into exile. The exile was the demonstration that God was very angry. Let's not forget, there were centuries of covenant breaking in Israel's history before the exile. 
There, there were several levels of discipline that God had employed in attempts to get the people turned from their sin over those centuries. He had brought things like droughts and famines and foreign oppression and so forth. God had sent many prophets during those centuries to interpret the events for the people, pointing out that these things are happening because of your sin. God had even taken the, the northern ten tribes away first into exile. He had split the nation. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went roughly a hundred years before the southern because of their sin. And, and the prophets then could point, don't be like the northern kingdom. Turn from your sin or the same will happen to you. The fall of Jerusalem and the final exile, that was the last straw. It was the final demonstration that the Lord was very angry. The people in Zechariah's day, they understood that fact. That was 70 years plus in the past at this point. They had understood that 70 years ago, the Lord was very angry, and that's what led to the exile. But then, that's verse 2, but then in verse 3, the attention flips from their forefathers to them. God suddenly looks to the current generation and says, return to me. He calls for their repentance, reminding them that repentance is a necessary precondition to his blessing. They, they would in be full agreement that the Lord was very angry with their forefathers, but they would be shocked when he says, therefore, you return to me. Look at verse 3. Do you see how three times the Lord refers to himself there? He refers to himself as Yahweh the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, as some translations do it. It's interesting that this Lord of hosts that we see, our Lord Almighty, this is the, the characteristic name that God uses for himself when he sends three prophets to speak for him. Three. Other prophets usually just use Yahweh, but Yah Lord Almighty, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, three times here, he, or three different prophets primarily use this Haggai, who began two months earlier, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi, who comes about 85 years in the future from where we're at. In other words, this is God's favorite term to address, or, or to, when he addresses his people, it's his favorite term for himself after the exile. The phrase, Lord of hosts, it means that God is sovereign over all the hosts, all the powers that exist. It doesn't matter if these are heavenly hosts or, or earthly hosts. God is sovereign over all of them. That certainly includes the, the hosts of Israel. God is their sovereign. But at the same time, it includes any host that surrounds them that they might fear. All these people that are, are intimidating them in the region, God's Almighty over them, too. He's their sovereign as well. Those people that for 15 years were scaring them. The, the hosts that make up even Cyrus's, the mighty Assyrians, his, his empire, his armies, God's sovereign over them. So any hosts that might be thinking about making noise now that the people have picked up their hammers and their saws and, and trying to bring opposition to them, God is saying, I'm sovereign over them. I am the Lord of hosts. Yet, really, that's just the background of God's address. God's sovereignty is the background. In the foreground, 
It is a direct call to repentance. The unfinished foundation of the temple, sitting right there in the middle of Jerusalem for 15 years while they built all their houses around it, the, the temple foundation was sitting there right in the middle. It demonstrated the rebellious heart of this generation. We've all seen unfinished construction projects, haven't we? They, they stand as a real blight in the neighborhood. When you see somebody started, build something, then it just stops. Pretty soon weeds pop up around the, what's there, and it, it's ugly. When we recognize that either the people ran out of money or, or something else caused them to lose heart with, with the project. Just being unfinished for a period of time tells us that's a, the condition. Well, the same is true here with the temple. It showed that the people lost heart in their project. Yet this was their place of worship. What they really lost heart in was their God. Because if they did not care to have a place to worship, they did not care for their God. The unfinished temple demonstrated an underlying rebellion in their own hearts. Sure, Haggai confronted them with this truth, and they'd responded positively. They responded with great gusto. But it was possibly, we don't know yet, was it an emotional response or true repentance? From our standpoint, all we see is they began working. But if we've lived at all, we know that true repentance only shows itself over time. From our perspective, only, God, only time can tell if it's real repentance or not, but God knows the heart. And God calls Zechariah to call the people to full repentance because of their rebellion. You know, the similar thing happens with us far too often. We... we too many times, hear the word of God preached, and our emotions are stirred. We recognize we are failing our God. We know that we should be doing more for God. We know that, that we could do more for God. We, we get all fired up to do more for God. And yet, we don't deal with the sin that has caused the current state to begin with. That sin is still lurking in our lives. And... The things of this world that, that we love more than God, they're still there. We need to turn from our rebellion against God if we hope to really receive blessing by serving God. God calls us to turn from our own rebellion. That is the first point that we learn in these verses. Second, God has always called people to turn from their rebellion. This ain't nothing new, folks. God has always called people to turn from their rebellion. What God is calling us to do is no different than what he required of his people throughout all of history. Verse 4 reminds the people of Zechariah's day of this truth. It's a reminder wrapped in the form of a warning. Don't be like your fathers. Again, referring to that pre-exilic generation. God had called them for centuries to turn from their rebellion. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them as, he says here in Zechariah, to turn from their evil ways and their evil deeds. It's not as if they did not receive the call to turn from their rebellion. God is consistent. By the way, the, the fact that the statement, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, is, is placed in quotation marks in our verse. 
in, in our versions, most of our versions in white English, we put that in quotation marks. That, that doesn't mean that that sentence is, is a direct statement recorded in any of the pre-exilic prophets. It, you know, we might think that, oh, we need to find, who said that? Was it Jeremiah? Was it Isaiah? Was it um, one of the other guys, Hosea? Who, who said that? No, it, it's not exact su- uh, quotation. It's a summary of the general message they preached. It's a bit like me saying that the Lions coach on, on Thursday said before the game, this team is ready to go. We're looking forward to taking on the Chiefs. Now I have no idea if, if he said that or not. I, I kind of doubt he said those exact words, but, but I've heard him interviewed be, uh, before that game. I heard statements repeated after the game that, that represented that was the gist of the message. We're ready. Well, that's really what's going on here. The gist of God's message to the people before the exile was return, or, or actually turn away. It's the image of the word is to do an about face, turn away, turn around from. That's what that Hebrew word means. Turn now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. That was God's message over and over and over. He had told generation after generation, turn from the sin, turn from their rebellion, so they could avoid his wrath. Friends, God is consistent. He has always called for his people to turn from their rebellion. That was true in Israel's history. That is true in church history. And generation after generation has failed to heed God's call to turn from their rebellion. Are we going to behave in a similar fashion? God has always called people to turn from their rebellion. Point number two. Which leads to point number three. God has punished those who ignore his call and remain in rebellion. God has punished those who ignore him. Look at verses five and six. Where are your fathers? They ain't here, are they? That's the implication. They're they're all dead now. In fact, where are the prophets that warned your fathers? Well, They ain't here either. In fact, the only thing that is here that is evidence that that God's word will last forever is the fact that what God said happened. That's the only thing that still exists. God's word will last forever. The, The predictions of his wrath that it would fall if the people continued to disregard his warnings in verse 6. It's pictured as overtaking the fathers. It's pictured as if it's running after them and catching them up with the destruction that God's words predicted. Yet that word choice is interesting. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophet, overtake your fathers? Did not they overtake your fathers? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Again, we'll come back to Zechariah, but turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a a significant chapter. It, It summarizes the covenant promises of God in the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28. We have a summary of the the promises that we would consider blessings, the the blessings that God guarantees the nation if they obey his word. Then from verse 15 onward, there's the covenant promises of punishment. What will happen if the nation disobeys? Deuteronomy 28 is a 
a repetition of the law of Moses right before the lands going into the, or the nations going into the promised land. This is the covenant agreement. This is the obligations. These are the, the blessings that will come. These are the curses that will come. The blessings come if you obey. The curses come if you disobey. Now look at verse 15 where the curses begin. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all of his commandments and his statutes which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and what? Overtake you. Did you catch that last phrase? There's that word, overtake. God promised the nation that these things would chase them down until they suffered them if they did not obey his word. What Zechariah is saying in our text is exactly the same thing. He is saying that God did exactly to their forefathers what God had promised he would do. His word overtook them just as he had told them centuries before it would do. But I want to see something else here in Deuteronomy as well. Look up to verse 2. All these blessings will come upon you and, what's the word? Overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Just as the curses can catch up to you, because they are God's word, the blessings that God has promised can catch you as well. God's blessings will chase people down if they obey him. It's the same word used in verse 2, verse 15, in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6. God's word remains. His word never fails to do what he says it will do. Zechariah is telling the people, the nation learn this the hard way. It's only after the, the words of the, the curses chased them down that they were taken in exile that they were forced to admit that, that God had done what he had promised to do according to what they had done. God was just laying out in response to what they had, had done. They were forced to acknowledge that God had done what was just and righteous. That's what it says there in verse 6, right? The Lord of hosts purpose due to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. God did what he said he would do. It is just and righteous. But now turn to Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. Jeremiah, Lamentations. Lamentations written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah, remember I mentioned, came right when the fall occurred. When, when the exile occurred, the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah was prophet on the scene. Lamentations is written in the, the rubble and the dust of the destroyed city of Jerusalem as he's surrounded by all the death that came with Nebuchadnezzar's destruction. Lamentations 2, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing. He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exiled the might of of your, or he exalt, has exalted the might of your adversaries. As Jeremiah sat in all the rubble of Jerusalem, he was in a position of acknowledging that we recognize the Lord has fulfilled his word. You know, we dare not read these things without recognizing that we too have the warnings of history. That's what's being laid out here in, in, 
in Zechariah, he's pointing to history and saying, learn from history. God did exactly what he said we would do. Our fathers, those who experienced it, that, that the few that lived through to be exiled could do nothing but acknowledge that God has done what he promised to do. But we too have examples of history. God has not only promised that he will punish those who ignore his call to turn from their sin, God has time and time again done so. He has punished those who steadfastly remain in rebellion. We have the example of Israel. We have examples of centuries that have come since then. God is consistent throughout the centuries. He is always true to his word. That's point three. God has punished those who ignore his call and remain in rebellion. Which really leads to the fourth point, the one that this entire text has been driving toward. God will punish us if we remain in our own rebellion. God will punish us if we remain in our own. Just as God called us to turn from our own rebellion, he's issued a call to the people of Zechariah's day. He's done both. He issued a call to them. In their current day, he issues that same call to us. We need to turn from our rebellion. Yet, yet the reason that Zechariah then reviewed all these details of ish, history was to just issue this implied warning to his generation. The people who had suffered already couldn't change the past. But the current generation could, could. Yet, unless they choose to heed God's call, they will end up like their forefathers. They'll be overtaken by, by God's promise of punishment. I want us to think carefully about this warning. From what Haggai teaches us, that the people, as I said, were beginning to do the right thing. They, they were at last rebuilding the temple. What was the problem? Apparently, their actions were not fully motivated by repentant hearts. They, they were doing right, but they were not necessarily yearning for righteousness. There remained rebelliousness within their hearts, and God was calling them out for it. The, the patterns of their forefathers were, were stamped deep into their lives. Haggai called them out for well-furnished, comfortable, luxurious houses, and they'd managed to build, as I said, during those 15 years while the temple sat unfinished. Apparently, their hearts were still more concerned about their own comforts, their own well-being, their own interests, than getting to know and worship and love God more and more. Just when they were starting to do externally what God wanted, God sends Zechariah to push deeper, to, to drill in and expose the rebellion that still remains in their heart. Rebellion doesn't necessarily look like rebellion. Rebellion can look like service. We can do what God wants us to do, but unless we're doing it because we want to know God more, we want to love God more, we want to worship God more, God remains displeased. God will not even accept us doing the right external things so that we can feel good about ourselves. We have to do these things for him and him alone. I fear that if we're honest with ourselves this evening, many of us will be forced to conclude that there is rebellion remaining within us. We are far more concerned about ourselves, our comfort, our relaxation, 
our entertainment, our interests. We're far more concerned about all these other things than we're about God and God's commands. We might do what God's telling us to do, but we're not doing it out of an all-consuming love for God. It's not wrong to enjoy serving God. I'm not saying that we should be miserable when we serve God. That's not at all what I'm saying. There should be joy in serving God, but our joy should be a byproduct of the fact that we are loving and worshiping Him more than we did. If that's not the case, if we're not serving God because we want to love God more, we want to worship God more, we want to know God more, we need to heed the warning. God will punish us if we remain in our own rebellion. He'll punish us if we remain in our own rebellion. The, the main idea of these verses, if we're going to step back and we want to put it all together tonight, the main idea that, that we've looked at this evening is, is this one. History warns us to turn from our own sinful rebellion. God gives us history for that purpose. History warns us to turn from our own sinful rebellion. The overall theme of Zechariah, as I, as I entitled this series, is hope beyond hardship. The exile was the hardship. Seventy years of extreme hardship, and that came after centuries of various levels of hardship. There is hope that comes. Yet for that hope to come, we need to heed the warning of history. Much like parents who say, won't you learn? God says the same thing. Won't you ever learn? He has given us the record of his word. He has given us the history of his actions. We are to learn from both. The people of Zechariah's day were to learn from the history of their forefathers. They needed to turn from the rebellion that remained in their heart before they could anticipate the hope that God offered. We too need to learn from history. And we need to turn from any rebellion that remains in our own hearts. Rebellion that continues to be that which we hold ourselves deep within because we want to have our own comforts and our own interests more than we want God. We need to turn from that rebellion. History warns us to turn from our own sinful rebellion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these few verses that we've been able to look at this evening and the message that's contained in there. I pray that your spirit would apply it to each of us so that we would examine ourselves and we would indeed learn from history that we need to examine ourselves find the rebellion that still lies within us and turn from it. Father, may we be men and women that have a true, deep yearning for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.